A big welcome to our live audience for coming to this episode of Digital Health Investor Talk. Today's topic is Get Validated Fast, Strategies That Later Stage Investors Reward in Today's Macro Environment with our guest, John Sullivan. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. Our guest today is John Sullivan. John is a venture partner at Two Bear Capital. In this role, John meets with many emerging digital health and life sciences companies to help them develop strategies that satisfy stakeholders. John is also the former head of strategy and equity research at SVB Leerink. Welcome, John. Well, thanks very much, Steve, and good, good afternoon, everybody. I appreciate you giving us some time this afternoon. That's great. So this show is being recorded as a podcast. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is on, uh, today's topic is get validated fast, strategies that later stage investors reward in today's macro environment. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll be talking for about 40 minutes. After that, we'll be taking call-ins from our audience, and we'll also be checking the text chat as well. Um, in order to do more than just listen to this call, you need to register an account with call-in. To register, you can access callin at C-A-L-L-I-N dot com or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Clubhouse Rooms and Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. It's not too late to register now for this show. Once you've registered, you can press the button, the website's button, call in, uh, or use the text chat to indicate that you'd like to speak up uh, and join the discussion. So, John, we're going to discuss a couple of topics on this call. One is any breaking news. Um, another is how Wall Street buy-side investors are reacting to stressful financial market conditions and how they're viewing healthcare and digital health in the light of those. And the third is getting validated fast in the eyes of big stakeholders like investors, partners, and consolidators for young digital health companies. Um, but first, the news. Today, Biden announced that he is finally ending the COVID emergency uh, national state of emergency, and that will be ending on May 11th. Um, what, what do you think this means for healthcare from an investor perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and we're a little, um, we're still a little bit in the, uh, in the dark regarding this. A, a couple of things that I would observe to you is that, um, I, I'm sorry, a couple of things are that, uh, first of all, I, I think that, um, it, it has the broadest implications for, t uh, in digital health for telemedicine. Uh, telemedicine benefited dramatically um, by adoption of during the uh, pandemic, as we know, and and we also know that the national emergency and public health emergency declarations um, were um, uh, were important to lowering a lot of the uh, barriers associated with adopting um, uh, telemedicine. So, uh, so, so it, it makes sense that uh, it makes sense that as we um, as we unwind those national emergency and public health emergency declarations, we will um, we we will see some uh, potentially negative uh, ne negative effects toward uh, toward telemedicine. Um, Steve, you and I chatted briefly on this today, and, and you mentioned that um, that some of the um, uh, that some of this is being addressed um, uh, directly by uh, by governments, both uh, federal and state, 
Do you want to uh, just chat for a second about what those uh, what, what those recent measures of progress are? Yeah. So uh, when you look back before the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of states that were very restrictive about telehealth in a couple of ways, uh, about practicing telehealth and about reimbursing uh, telehealth, uh, at giving it a substantially lower level of reimbursement. And uh, and this was sometimes governed by state law and state medical boards. Um, and what the pandemic did was it uh, blessed telehealth to use for for a very wide number of applications, and it let it uh, promoted uh, reimbursement equivalence, which was great for companies in telehealth uh, and for providers to to uh, say they'll use telehealth instead of wanting an in person meeting. And so now, what I've heard is that at a federal level, um, uh, legislation has been passed to extend. Um, the, you know, these special provisions for telehealth for two years uh, on. So the fact that Biden is saying that the emergency will end on May 11th from a federal perspective uh, uh, doesn't matter because uh, telehealth is, continues its special provisions for two more years. Um, but at the state level, at every state, there are states, uh, states of emergencies at the states that need to, that may end. Uh, and then there's also uh, those state regulations, and there needs to be, uh, you know, a, a continuity of current telehealth regulations in in every state, uh, or else you may see uh, them slip back to the way they were before. So there's a real possibility that if a state's not being proactive about uh, about um, keeping, you know, wide use of telehealth and reimbursement equivalents of telehealth, that it will actually go back the way it was before. And there's actually interest groups in each state that want this to happen. For example, a lot of physicians behind state, um, uh, uh, you know, medical boards um, would would like to see less telehealth uh, because they because in-person medicine is an important part of the way that they practice as physicians. So we'll see. It it, it may play out in a somewhat um, irregular and chaotic way state by state. Sure. There there are two things that I would say, though, that 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 I think. um... Um, participants in the healthcare system and investors in healthcare need to keep in mind. First of all, uh, this um, uh, th- this uh, lifting of the emergency declaration that is uh, slated for May 2023 is not um, uh, does not uh, have anything to do with directly the emergency youth authorizations of medical countermeasures for COVID, like vaccines um, that that the uh, that the FDA. Um, uh, that the FDA uh, embarked on uh, within the context of the pandemic. So uh, the emergency youth authorizations for um, for various um, uh, for various uh, uh, vaccines and therapeutics and even diagnostics that happened within the context of the pandemic, those are unaffected by um, by the um, by Biden's um, action today regarding or recently regarding the um, uh, regarding what we're talking about. That's item number one. And, and and then item number two is um, uh, I hear you, Steve, that there are some uh, that there are some constituencies that uh, that that aren't as directly benefited by um, by telemedicine, and maybe they present some headwinds, especially at the state level. Um, but it's important to see that there are some constituents that uh, will be much more powerfully behind telemedicine now, having seen what it can do. And and I think first in line um, among those constituents are um, are large companies that offer. Um, telemedicine or help to facilitate telemedicine um, to benefit their workforce. I, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, private insurers that really like telemedicine. And I think that there are uh, self-insured companies, especially that believe that 
uh, facilitating telemedicine really helps their employees. It helps their employees to um, to be productive. It helps them to um, uh, lower their um, uh, daily stress level. Think of think about young families and things like this. And importantly, for those companies that would like to see their employees come back to the office, um, you're going to see them especially um, supportive of telemedicine because they'll see uh, telemedicine as potentially smoothing an important wrinkle in that area. So I, I do think that there are some strong um, uh, there are some strong supporters of telemedicine. Um, the, I, I think that the pandemic changed us completely and utterly regarding the use of telemedicine. Uh, we all know that there are lots of constituencies, rural populations, things like that, that um, that benefit by it dramatically. Um, it, it's interesting to see the extent to which um, private payers and um, and self-insured companies are supportive of it as well. That's great. Um, so now I'm going to move on to how the market uh, or how let's, say, let's let's specify as Wall Street buy side investors, what they're thinking about healthcare. So let me set up kind of two um, straw men here, which is that in the past, um, buy side investors, they, they loved it. And speaking of healthcare services, which is payers and providers, uh, you know, doing the, the, the everyday work of healthcare, um, in general, investors liked payers and providers, uh, especially when there's recession fears, because they were seen as counter-cyclical and even as defensive equities to own, um, uh, because people still need healthcare, need to spend on healthcare, even during a downturn. Um, but that's, that that halo has sort of been slowly worn off of healthcare services a little over time. Secondly, with digital health, digital health was seen as a darling sector combining both healthcare and technology um, with growthy companies uh, that uh, benefited enormously from the pandemic because people stopped seeing each other in person and moved to more digital uh, sources of technology and it led to wonderful adoption. So that's how Wall Street used to see um, these sectors, but we've seen changes. So what are those changes? Oh my goodness. We've seen, um, uh, you know, uh, inflation uh, and uh, go to eight to 9%, inter- risk-free interest rates going to four to 5%. We've seen the stock market go risk off. Uh, we, we have recession fears. Um, we have uh, a COVID pandemic that's trailing off. Uh, we have a war in Ukraine that could that could spread. And this has led to a lot of changes on Wall Street, such as the IPO window being closed uh, and many public digital health companies have become fallen angels and have fallen from, you know, from, you know, uh, to 5% of their former value even. Um, uh, And you've got a lot of venture investors dedicated to digital health who are sort of sitting on the sidelines um, and rumor some venture funds are not able to raise next funds from the big LPs uh, uh, and those big LPs may be allocating away from digital health. So, what uh, what do you think uh, is going on in investors' minds? How are they responding to the this um, negative financial market environment? And what are they thinking of the different parts of healthcare? Yeah, it, it's a good question. It, it, it's um, I, I'll spend a moment on it, and um, and then I hope that we get to the main question of the call around validation. But let, let's talk about this. I've spent a lot of years um, helping um, investors think about uh, decision making in healthcare and life sciences, uh, both public and private. So I think public market investors today uh, uh, come out of the um, come out of the year 2022 as 
um, as as you know, being skeptical of a lot of the public companies that came um, that that came out over 2020 and 2021. Um, I, I think that there are there's good reason for that skepticism. I think that it was a pretty breathless IPO environment, and um, companies came public across um, healthcare and surely in other sectors. Um, this is even before we start talking about SPACs. Um, but there were there were lots of uh, pu- companies that came public that were probably earlier um, than they uh, than they needed to be. They were probably middle to late stage venture companies, and um, and they came public because they had the opportunity to do so. So so those companies found their way into investor portfolios. Um, those companies then um, uh, you know in many cases disappointed investors, uh, and um, and and then we furthermore. Uh, got into an environment where interest rates were rising. We all know that um, early stage companies like digital health companies and like biotech companies, we all know that uh, their cash flows are back end weighted, which means when discount rates rise, those back end uh, cash flows are become less valuable. And for and for that, among other reasons, that that in itself is a reason to um, uh, to um, uh for 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 the stocks of these companies to move to lower prices. So um, so as as we uh, as we stand today, and as recently as this afternoon, you probably saw that the Federal Reserve System um, uh, Open Market Committee raised interest rates by twenty five basis points in 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 line with expectations. Uh, the dialogue around the um, around the um, uh, move is broadly in line with what investors would have expected. Um, the uh, the stock market in the very you know in the last hour and a half um, performed uh, performed well and seemed to accept uh, the Fed's uh, decision and rationale reasonably well. So um, so it feels like we're on track to be within a couple of few months of the environment of 2022, where the Fed was a distinct headwind for investors and especially for speculative companies. Um, that that environment's going to be behind us. So um, so I'm uh, uh, my guess is that uh, the second half of this year um, will be uh, will be one that's pretty favorable for emerging stage uh, public companies. I think that investors in those companies will see that uh, that they have an that that those companies will have an operating environment that'll be more um, favorable, and and I think that those stocks will do better. So um, so for public market. Um, for public publicly held digital health companies and other healthcare and life sciences companies, my opinion is that um, we're we're going to have a better 2023 than we had 2022. Um, uh, I am starting to see some IPOs in the biotech space um, in uh, in in, 2000, in in the last even in the last couple of weeks. We'll have to see how those go, but. I think that the foundation is being put in place in the first half of 2023 for us to get back to a better environment for um, for um, investing in speculative um, healthcare and life sciences, and that includes emerging stage digital health public companies. Um, if I can just go on for one more second and talk about private um, uh, private digital health companies, um, uh, th- that that was obviously a, a very challenging um, environment uh, in terms of fundraising and. I talked to lots of private digital health CEOs who say that functionally um, the, the market was completely closed in the second half of 2022. Um, I, I think that the market is opening uh, in a um, in, in a pretty measured way in early 2023. I'm hearing from CEOs 
that are telling me that um, they are not seeing the access to capital that they saw uh, a year or two ago, but they're seeing better access to capital than they saw in the uh, second half of 2022. So we'll kind of get into what that means and and how to satisfy those investors um, and how to attract capital um, as a um, as a venture stage digital health company in 2023. But I, I think that the broad market environment is is probably turning from headwinds in the last nine to 12 months to tailwinds certainly by the second half of this year. I am not here to tell you that we're going to get back to the kind of um, to the kind of market environment we had in 2020 and, and much of 2021. We're not getting back to that kind of um, breathless environment. But I, I think that it'll be an environment, albeit with lower valuations than in 2020 and 21, we'll be back to an environment where good companies will be able to find funding toward meaningful inflection points and, um, uh, and be able to, um, uh, to, to grow their business toward their goal. That, that's great. Um, so now moving on to the topic of, of get validated fast. Um, so uh, validation has always been important. And we're talking about validation of a, of a company here in the eyes of, uh, of later stage investors, let's say. There's also product partners. There's also sales partners. There's also consolidators as well. It's always been important. If you cycle back to, to the boom times, maybe five quarters ago, I think uh, that the environment was less critically minded. Investors were less critically minded about this. And today, though, they're, they're more critically minded about, you know, are you going to be validated for later stage partners? And also the, the fundraising environment was a lot richer uh, five quarters ago. And it's and it is, uh, you know, it's tighter today. And so you're looking at companies that, that young companies that are going to have to prove that they're validated better with less with a less uh, favorable fundraising environment that's tough that's what we brought you on to talk about um, but can you can you uh, talk a little bit about you know what you're uh, what you're seeing out there from partners and uh, what young companies are strategies that young companies have to uh, to get validated fast sure and, and and i think that you're making a good point steve that that the, the environment is different today for emerging stage digital health companies in a very fundamental way versus what it was um, several quarters ago. And the biggest difference is that is that several quarters ago, investors were, including venture investors, but certainly um, late stage uh, private investors like crossover round investors and public market investors were really ruled by um, uh, short-term greed as opposed to um, uh, longer-term company building, and uh, and the SPAC market had a the SPAC market was both evidence of that and a contributor to that. Um, the SPAC market um, caused um, a lot of um, uh, a, a, a lot of uh, uh, decision making among young companies uh, to uh, to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done to do things because they felt like they were getting uh, left behind and ultimately um, caused them to um, to be in situations that uh, that probably weren't good for the company's ability to hit its long-term goals, but um, created some short-term liquidity and created some, um, some, some wealth that turned out to be pretty short-term in a lot of cases as well. So um, wh- where I think we are today versus that environment is that I, I think that, um, first of all, uh, crossover round investors are gone. Period. Um, there's um, there's really no such thing today 
as that investor who is fundamentally a public market investor, but creeps back into a round that is um, that that is created within nine to twelve months before an expected IPO, um, and that round is explicitly created to create a set of stakeholders that public market stakeholders can rely on as they contemplate the IPO. So that crossover round, which was populated by um, attractive brands in the public market investing space, um, uh, that cr- and was frequently uh, priced at 50 to 70% of the ultimate IPO, um, that round of inv- that investment round does not exist today. So what exists today in the venture market is um, is it, it, something that is is what venture investing is supposed to be, which is um, w- which is investing uh, toward uh, fundamental progress, toward fundamental inflection points, and um, and, and so we're we're back to something that looks like a more um, rational um, uh, venture uh, and um, entrepreneur environment. Now, um, importantly, uh, it's important to see that the decline of the public markets causes the decline or the evaporation of the crossover venture round market, which leads to the de- a decline in valuations of, of late stage venture, which ultimately leads eventually to um, uh, to lower valuations in, um, in, in, in middle and early stage venture. And, and this is, this is entirely a function of, this is entirely a function of your, your HP 12C calculator and desired rates of return. It's as simple as that. Every investor makes an investment not only on the uh, the fundamentals of the company, but also uh, where they think they can exit the investment someday um, if all goes well. And um, and since those exit economics have changed dramatically, it is reasonable to expect that entry economics change as well. Um, now, uh, I'm sure that's not a surprise to anybody, but nonetheless, um, let me be clear that um, th- this is um, this is entirely a function of um, internal rate of return calculations um, and, and hurdles, as opposed to um, as in most cases, as far as I know, as opposed to um, somebody trying to take advantage of of um, of um, of struggling entrepreneurs. Now, having said that, I, I think that um, I, I think that there are there are there are lots of differences in um, in, in valuations that reasonable people can reach for early uh, stage companies. And um, and I think that those differences are frequently a function of things like capital availability at the venture fund itself. And so for that reason, you, the entrepreneur, have to think hard about whether you're finding the right venture partners for your um, for your company. And you have to think about their ability to be your venture partner in not only the the, um, the the capital raise that you are undertaking at the moment, but in a future capital raise or two as well, because that's obviously a very important declaration of confidence um, in in you um, by the venture community. So um, so um, although it, uh, I'm sure there are lots of entrepreneurs that say in an environment like this, I don't have the luxury of deciding who's going to give me money. I have to take the money from who will give it to me. Um, I will tell you that uh, I, I believe that incrementally that environment is changing um, month by month. And I, I think you're going to um, to have more, um, uh, to have a little bit more um, flexibility in, um, in this area in the not so distant future. So hang in there. 
Um, Steve, I, I can keep going unless you want to jump in, but I, I, I can keep going and talk specifically about um, what venture investors are looking for today. Yes, uh, by all means. Go all right, ahead. so let, let me let me continue. And um, um, so, uh, venture investors today, I think if I can um, if I can make broad characterizations, I think that they are much more inclined toward inflection point investing as opposed to platform investing. I think they're more inclined toward um, investing that. Um, that 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 shows tangible progress in relatively short periods of time. That is to say, eighteen to thirty-six months, um, as, as opposed to um, investments that are um, that, that are um, stimulated by um, a uh, an estimation of a uh, of a gigantic end market and a massive um, um, opportunity set. Uh, naturally, venture investors want both, um, but I, I think that all else being equal. Um, the, 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 the investors that were willing to just write checks because you presented them with something that sounded like a 10 or $20 billion market opportunity. I, I think that those investors are no longer, um, those investors are no longer leading and, um, and those that, um, that want to see, um, incremental progress and tangible progress in relatively short periods of time, um, are, are, are now leading. Now, uh, I, I think that, um, uh, so, and I think that all of this boils down to more than anything else, validation. And so let's talk about validation a little bit and what constitutes validation in digital health these days. And I'm going to talk primarily for this moment um, about um, companies that are trying to work within the healthcare system as opposed to within life sciences, et cetera. We'll, we'll talk about life sciences in a bit. But for companies that are, uh, for emerging digital health companies that are working within the healthcare system, we know what we'd all like validation to be. We'd like validation to be a deal with Mayo or MSK or United Healthcare or CVS. Um, we, we'd like that. Um, I, I think that I, I worry, and my experience is that partners in the in the top tier, the the most top tier partners, are in some cases overwhelmed. Are in some cases overwhelmed by. The uh, the sheer volume of partnering opportunities that they have, um, they are um, uh, as we all know, literally hundreds of digital health companies were were formed and and scores came public in twenty and twenty one and um, um, as a result, uh, there are a lot of um, uh, digital health companies that are calling on the same relatively small cohort of um, of of a plus plus potential partners now. It, those partners are great, and if you can inspire those partners to, um, to, to, to join you, that's awesome. But I do worry about their bandwidth, and I also worry that those partners can afford to be strategic, and those partners, as a result of the sheer volume of what comes across their desk, um, th- th- there's a tremendous temptation to say, if we go slow on this, um, we might be able to get this at a at more favorable economics to us, or or the competitive landscape might might resolve a little bit, and um, and and we'll be able to make a clearer bet on on who's likely to be the winning horse. Um, I, I I worry that in in a world where the um, the volume of um, uh, the volume of uh, opportunity is so big for um, for those uh, top tier partners. I, I worry that there are incentives for them to um, uh, to see how it all plays out for a bit. And that obviously doesn't favor any of the entrepreneurs um, uh, like the ones on this call. As a result, 
Um, I, I think smaller partners are reasonable to consider. And I, I think that in this environment, um, my strong guidance is that the best partner is an enthusiastic partner. Um, the best partner is a um, is 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 an enthusiastic partner because that partner is likely to act quickly. Um, that partner is likely to uh, uh, to help get you through legal and compliance. I cannot tell you how many um, emerging digital health companies I talk to that say, "Yep, they say they like us, but we've been in legal for twelve months." Um, that's uh, that's obviously frustrating and potentially fatal to um, uh, to entrepreneurs like yourselves. But it, it, it's also something that um, that sounds completely intractable until you have a partner that says you are important to me. I'm going to figure this out. So um, an enthusiastic partner gets you through legal and compliance. An enthusiastic partner gets you. If you're not talking to the CEO, get you through the CEO, get you through the board, and um, and, and get you. Um, and importantly, an enthusiastic partner gives you learnings and and gives you validation that helps you improve and helps you scale. So I, I encourage um, I encourage not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, or the good being the enemy of the perfect. I always forget which way that works. I encourage this the good being the enemy of the perfect. Um, I, I encourage you to consider um, regional partners. I think there's tremendous number of regional health systems that are that that are that are um, uh, that are fighting um, uh, the same challenges as the largest ones, and that can serve as um, as as uh, good validation for you, and um, uh, and help you um, help you improve uh, in, in the bargain. So. Um, so that's kind of item number one for me. Don't die on the hill of um, of the dream partner. Uh, get a partner. Um, my, my second point to you is that um, uh, is that an enthusiastic partner also holds the potential to be what I see as candidly the most validating thing I can see as an investor in um, in the partnership arena, which is a repeat partner. Um, I cannot tell you how validating a repeat partner is to um, to uh, to investors like myself. Um, I see so few companies that tell me we signed this partnership, we worked each, with each other, and then a year and a half later we signed an expanded deal. I can't tell you how few times that happens. And um, a, a repeat or an expanded partnership tells an investor like me, first of all, that you've done what you promised you would. Um, I live in a world where time is always the enemy. And I live in a world where, um, where um, people with all good intentions aren't able to do the things that they said that they would do. And it's, you know, it's frequently nobody's fault. It's just, you know, headwinds emerge, unforeseen circumstances emerge. Um, and, um, uh, but a repeat partnership tells me that, um, that you're able to do what you said you would do. And that in itself is powerful. A repeat partnership tells me that you can communicate. You can communicate across your partner's institution. Um, you can communicate. Um, you can commune. You can keep an open channel of communications with your champion at the partner, and and um, and and be um, responsive to what the um, to what your partner is telling you. And um, and importantly, it's a repeat partnership tells me 
that you are addressing a pain point for your partner. Um, I see lots of partnerships with partners that are intrigued by what the digital health company is doing, but you aren't really addressing a pain point. And, um, and, and then they, they use the partnership as a source of some learning and, um, uh, and, and the partnership kind of, you know, um, dies in the vine would be too uh, draconian, but the partnership does not fulfill what, um, what we all thought it would um, uh, be. So, um, so uh, I encourage um, my, um, my uh, uh, CEOs and my, my friends that are um, entrepreneurs in digital health to have a uh, map in your own mind, not only for how you're going to get that partner, but how you're going to keep that partner happy and how you're going to actually expand that partnership because there's nothing that's more validating for me than a, um, uh, th than a, um, uh, an expanded um, partnership. A repeat partnership agreement is much more difficult for your champion than the initial partnership. And that may be surprising to you, but I feel this, I feel strongly about this. Um, it's harder than getting you in the door in the first place. You can get in the door for lots of reasons. Like I said, somebody's intrigued. Somebody has a quota of, of how many partnerships they're supposed to sign this year. Um, somebody is uh, trying to do a um, an accommodation for a uh, board member or something like that. And um, but the with a repeat, he or she, your champion, had to go to the boss and maybe the CEO and the board and say, "Okay, now we understand exactly what they can do for us." We understand how aligned they are with us. We understand how they can grow with us. We understand that their culture is similar to our culture in the important ways, and we want them. Um, it's much harder than the initial ask. So, um, so I encourage, um, and, and it may sound like a, um, it may sound like a, um, a, a, a unreasonable cherry on top of an ice cream sundae to say not only should you be thinking about a partner, but thinking about how you can keep that partner happy enough to expand the partnership, but I am certain that, um, that, that if you think strategically at the start about that, an expanded partnership with a tier two partner is much more valuable to me than just having a, a tier one partner logo on your, um, on your deck and, um, um, and, and not a lot of um, uh, news about exactly how that partnership is going. And by the way, when, when you say partner here, so if you had a, um, you know, a clinical decision support software company and they get a pilot with a hospital chain, that, that, that would, that would qualify as a partnership for Yeah, you. for sure. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly in, in, yeah, in, in the, um, in the health system, uh, in healthcare as opposed to life sciences, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And if you had a, you know, a digital health benefit company that had a partnership or that had a pilot with a, a, a progressive large employer for their, for their product, that would also be a, a partnership. Uh, right. All, all of this is true. And expanding from a, from that pilot number of, of, of covered lives or expanding from one territory worth of covered lives to a, um, to something that's bigger or importantly, expanding from an initial indication to an adjacent indication, you know, not only are we doing, you know, uh, not only are we doing diabetes, but we're doing some other uh, renal stuff as well. Um, the, all, all of that, all of that constitutes um, both partnerships and expanded partnerships. So shall I continue, Steve, for a sec? Yep. Okay. So anyways, 
and, and then so as a venture investor and a, a single repeat partner is more valuable to me than two partners. Um, but two partners is more than twice as valuable as one partner. Um, so uh, one partner always leaves um, uh, uh, people like me wondering whether the partner did uh, as much diligence as they needed to do, whether they understood their own need as well as they should have, um, whether the, or whether there was a board relationship or something else that got the deal signed. Two partnerships is a movement. Two partnerships shows that your um, um, shows that your your you can make progress beyond a single relationship. It's really powerful. So, Steve, with this, I, I would I would talk for another couple of minutes. I would change to some of the um, steps that I see taken and I see mistaken regarding finding your partner. If that's the sort of thing that would help, uh, that's great. Yes. Yeah. So let me just continue um, for a moment in that in that area. And um, the single biggest mistake I see in emerging stage companies, including digital health companies, um, in, in terms of personnel toward finding the partner or key customer that you want is hiring the wrong business development or salesperson. Is hiring a person, and sometimes it's done with full forethought, maybe out of desperation or, or maybe out of a, um, um, an urgency that um, that everybody's feeling. Uh, I, I, I see a lot of hiring of somebody that does not have the precise relationship with individuals that your target, your target customer, your target partner, that you need to succeed. And I cannot encourage you strongly enough to find the right person in this role. Um, you, you, you did all of the hard work as the, as the leader you, you created your product or your service. You, 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 you tested it like crazy. You took all the risks. You and your teammate, you know, worked through the night and ate Raymond noodles and, and did everything that you needed to do to get the company to this point. And now you're going to put the company in the hands of somebody that's, um, uh, that, that, that is going to help you find who you need to succeed from here. Um, sometimes the, the it's a it's a it's I cannot tell you how crucial a decision it is. Um, sometimes there are obvious footfalls. I I hear um, CEOs saying this uh, this guy's a great salesman. He can sell anything. Um, sometimes it's smaller problems like um, uh, she is wired into the VP of research at this um, at our target. Don't worry, she'll be able to get over to the CIO. Those are all mistakes, and those are all. Those are all things that you need to think about very carefully. Um, your first BD or sales hire must have the exact relationship that you want. And um, it, it is often the case that, that small companies like emerging stage digital health companies literally aren't getting into that company without that relationship. So I encourage sufficient diligence. Um, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to necessarily encourage recruiters, although... If that moment comes, go to your board and tell your board that you need to pay a recruiter. And um, uh, uh, and I've had interviews in the past. And don't be afraid to do all the diligence that you need to do in order to in order to gain the comfort that the person you're hiring is not only all of the things you need them to be, but has those relationships that you need. So. Uh, I've had interviews in the past with BD or sales candidates where I mention a target and I mention a person at the target and the candidate tells me that they know that person incredibly well. And then I say, oh, really? What's her husband's name? 
don't be afraid to ask difficult questions to get the comfort that you need that that person really knows those um, knows those people as well as you need them to to uh, to know those people because that first or second customer is taking a big risk they're taking a risk on you because there are probably other places that they can go to satisfy what you propose to deliver to them they have to be convinced to use you instead and um, and, and frequently that's a function of a relationship that's a long-standing relationship that's a relationship with a lot of trust and a relationship that's that can even be personal and not professional um, so under any circumstances you need to know whether there's an actual relationship or somebody just looked at somebody else's LinkedIn on the way into your interview so I encourage you to be careful about that and then if I just had two more minutes Steve I would just chat about the uh, advisors to digital health companies, to life sciences and digital health companies, and, um, and, and utilizing them toward the goal of validation. And um, what I would say there is that advisors get picked by um, emerging stage companies for lots of reasons. Advisors get picked because they, um, they uh, sometimes because they, uh, they have a, a brand um, that is seen as a valuable brand. And sometimes they get picked because of longstanding relationships. Um, there's a comfort level. There's a trust level. And um, this includes boards of directors, but it certainly is um, advisors like um, like um, clinical advisors and scientific advisors and things like that. Um, I encourage advisors that can do something very tangible for the company. Uh, I, I encourage uh, I encourage relationships that um, that can deliver a partner or that can deliver something something tangible, and I encourage economic arrangements with potential advisors that specifically call this out. Um, I, I encourage you not to go buy advisors that are advising twenty other companies because folks like me see through that right away. We we all know the advisors for hire. And um, and even the board members for hire, and they're not um, they're they're not incremental. They're not additive to your value. Um, I encourage um, finding advisors with a specific goal in mind, um, an advisor that's going to help you um, advance your product in a certain dimension or advance your um, a relationship with a certain potential customer. And I encourage a partnership agreement with that advisor that says, uh, we're going to give you options or stock or whatever you're going to do for that person initially that you can invest into over time. But, um, but, uh, uh, but we will give you more should you deliver this to the board's satisfaction or to the CEO's satisfaction. I've seen, I don't see a lot of um, advisor agreements written that way. But I would encourage every company to think of it that way, because, first of all, it will it'll um, it will keep you from um, uh, from making advisor uh, alignment decisions that don't really have a good strategic goal in mind. And it will um, it, it'll get the advisor thinking uh, this is a company that I'm actually going to have to do some work for and put a relationship on the line for as opposed to um, just um, uh, see if uh, just own some options and see if they vest. So, um, so those are the things that I had regarding validation, Steve, and I'm happy to, you know, chat further or we can do whatever you like.
that's great. And I, I have some uh, some sort of dilemma questions or some some strategy questions and dilemma questions about this. Uh, but first, I wanted to relate. I once knew uh, a guy who um, was the son of a of a of a billionaire, uh, um, you know, yeah. Uh, industry guru, um, and he started a digital health company, and he put uh, both his father and his father's um, best friend on his board, and he uh, put term limits in them, so they they cycled out after something like three years or whatever, uh, and he he put those limits in everyone's advisory uh, contracts, and uh, and he said, well, if they if they're not adding value, then that then they get cycled off, uh, and so adding a, a a limit uh, in the first contract to and then you can you can renew but uh you're not um you're not you know uh you don't have to fire someone explicitly they can just cycle off if they're not adding the value they said they would um, so uh but I, I thought i'd you know so, some of the ceos who are on this call uh they um they were following a strategy that went something like this in five quarters ago in the funding rich environment the strategy simply was get big fast. It was put top line growth at all costs. And that top line growth rate, that was your validation um, to uh, partners and investors that you were growing fast. Uh, and this came at a cost and the cost included, um, you'd have to raise a lot more money uh, and give away equity for that, for that money. Uh, and it included uh, that you were going to be earnings negative for longer. Uh, and that meant that you couldn't control your own destiny if you were earnings negative. Um, uh, and it also meant that you, your sales team probably was selling the people easiest to sell rather than the most strategic sales or the most valuable long-term sales as well. And so we now have a new environment, a capital-constrained environment. Um, are, you think that people are going to change, and what, what is this going to change to as a, as a strategy? Are, are, are companies going to be valued by some other metric like, um, like you know, uh, target margins in the future, re realistic target market margins in the future or something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a, a couple of things I would say is, first of all, I, I think the environment, the, the, the funding environment and the valuation um, uh, framework within which we're all operating today is causing that change to occur anyways, right? You, like, like you're just not, the, the entrepreneur just isn't being given as much um, leeway to just um, uh, to just go build it the way you just described in most cases. Um, um, investors are looking for intermediate um, signs of progress and, 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 and signs toward, um, uh, toward, uh, uh, adding value, building value in a different way. Uh, you know, regarding whether there are different metrics, uh, I, I do think that investors want to, certainly public market investors, um, in digital health want to know that you're going to be cash flow flat, um, within a, you know, foreseeable, uh, amount of time, whether that's, you know, th three quarters, four quarters, something like that. I, I, I think that, uh, I, I think that the, the companies that are in the most dangerous position right now in, in, in the public market and digital health are companies that can't articulate when it is they're going to get to, um, uh, cash flow, uh, break even at least. So I don't know that the metrics are changing. Uh, but I, I think that investor um, patience with those metrics is changing for sure. And uh, I, I think that cash flow break even is something that I hear talked about an awful lot more in, in, in public market investors. Great. And so another 
strategy that I saw, and there's an emerging uh, term being that that go that that is um, that that was a zero interest rate phenomenon. Uh, I'm hearing this this phrase used more and more. Um, uh, you know, uh, paying large amounts of money for uh, a a picture of a bored monkey was a um, was a zero interest rate phenomenon, etc. <laughs> And uh, so another strategy, though, was you'd have a company that maybe it has two products and it's thinking about going out to raise uh, two products on the market. It's, it's going to raise a, a next round. And then they put a lot of effort uh, uh, of management and then also some product R&D expense, product development expense into starting other products. So they're redirecting resources to start other products so that they can go to market with a story about a suite of products or a platform, even though um, the, you know the the some of those elements of the suite uh, are are you know have only had done had a minor amount of product development work done on them, but they think it's very important as a mark of validation to be able to say we we're not just a single product company or two point solutions. We have a suite of products and we have a our own platform um, and. Uh, they also found that other companies were saying the same thing. Uh, and, and so now today we're in a more capital constrained environment. Investors are putting on a more critical visor looking at companies. Is this equally as important today or, uh, you know, do, do investors just want to see that you've got, you know, two um, hit products that are, are going to break even and they, and they don't want you spending the extra time and money, um, uh, you know, in this environment planning out to have a suite and a platform? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is really, this is a fundamental pain point for the digital health industry right now, because a lot of the biggest customers, um, especially in the corporate market, especially in the market, you know, where you're calling on HR departments and trying to get them to, you know, adopt your, um, your, um, uh, your offering, uh, they're, they're less interested in single point solutions than they used to be. And they're enticed by companies that say to them, we can help you across your needs in a more um, substantial way as opposed to a single point solution. So so I'm 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 really you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really sensitive to the reality that especially if you're selling into the corporate market, that you're getting a lot of pushback if you if you have one thing that you do and, and that's all that you do. Um, but. Having said that, as an investor, you're going to have to, I, I, I let, let me say this. I spend a lot of time in biotech. In biotech, we t- I tell companies all the time, I want to see your lead drug candidate that you're excited about. I want to see a second program that you're excited about. And I want you to have a well thought out plan for the third thing that you would do if you had, um, if you had more money. and if you have a fourth or a fifth or a sixth thing, I want you to kill all of those because I'm not going to give you anything incrementally for any of those. And I, I, I don't know that it's precisely the same in um, in digital health, but I will say that uh, there's tremendous value to focus. Now, I understand well entrepreneurs that say, yeah, you venture guys just want your, to have your cake and eat it too. You want me to take all the risk associated with the um, – um, with, with putting all my eggs in the basket of the single product or the or, or the or the two co-products, um, and, and you'll just you'll just go on to your other portfolio companies if I fail. I understand that objection and I empathize with it. I really do. 
but I must tell you that I know lots of companies that had a terrific first idea and a pretty good second idea. And by they get by the time they get past that, they're kind of scrambling and they're coming up with things to diversify their own portfolio and risk as opposed to things where they have identified a very specific pain point in their customers and and they they have the um the, the right capabilities um to uh to meet it. So um I, I understand and I empathize with the pain associated with the amount of focus that I would prefer that you have. Um but nonetheless I, I think the best path to your success is to be focused and and don't go past a, a couple of products um without a lot of thought. Great. And so now, a similar question for uh, sales channels. So it seems like in digital health, more than almost any other sector in America, um, uh, people who have a good IP and a good basic product, they can sell it down different kinds of sales channels. So uh, what are those sales channels? Well, one of them is the employer benefits budget, and another is the commercial payer budget, but there's also the government payer um, budget. And another one, and all these require different kinds of salespeople typically. Another one is the hospital CIO budget or the hospital CFO uh, budget. Um, and another one is the pharma uh, clinical IT budget uh, or the pharma commercial IT budget. Um, another is the consumer um, uh, who buys, you know, might who might buy Livongo, for example, if it was available to the consumer for their diabetes. Um, and then there's also the prescriber um, uh, budget as well, where things are prescribed by prescribers and reimbursed by payers. Uh, so all of these different sales channels, which you usually have to spend, have to then develop a different product for each one, have a different sales team for each one. Uh, and uh, uh, is this uh, is this validating? So uh, to, do investors want to see and partners want to see that you have developed a diabetes solution and you sell it to both uh, employers and also to commercial payers, uh, for example? Um, you know, yeah. I mean, if if depending on the stage of the company, um, not only is it validating, it's really powerful from a valuation standpoint. Um, and, and here's why. If you have a product that, you've kind of conditioned your investors in the investment community to believe that it's a product that has a $750 million market opportunity because you're selling to this part of this institution. And then you say, actually, we hired a couple of salespeople with good relationships and we actually figured out how to sell our product into this other market. Well, Investors are now going to say, oh, this is no longer a $750 million market opportunity. You now have a billion and a quarter market opportunity or something like that. So investors will give you a lot of credit for that. So <clears throat> to the extent that you can do that without a um, lot of um, uh, uh, putting, the, uh, putting your own organization's um, finances at risk uh, dramatically in doing so, uh, I, I think that's um, that, that's that, that's one of the primary forms of value accretion that I see, especially once a company becomes a public company. Um, uh, there's a lot of precedent for a um, uh, a product that meets market number one, and the stock is trading at X, and then the product uh, then the product shows that it's relevant in the second market, and the stock now trades at 1.5x. So I encourage that. My, my only caution is what we've talked about before. Um, 
if you are trying to sell into different markets, you're going to need different salespeople. And um, a big mistake would be to say, I don't know, I have some sales guys that are doing a great job in our core market. I'm sure they're going to be able to sell in the second market. Um, nowhere, by the way, is this more important, uh, a, a distinction to recognize than in um, than in uh, uh, the commercial markets versus the government markets. Government markets is a completely different sale from from commercial markets. And I encourage you to go find people that have succeeded in the government markets. It's a different pace. The, 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 the buyers have different priorities, different things they care about. Um, anyways, enough said on that. That That's great. So um, uh, and, and by the way, I've, I've also have heard I I heard some VCs from Flair a while back. This is before the downturn in markets, but they said that they thought that an ideal number of sales channels for a venture stage company was two, um, and that if it if it got more than that, then that was might be a concern uh, that they're not putting enough effort and money behind their key two. And if it's less than that, then the company becomes uh, riskier. Uh, and uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. That that was an interesting. I, I'd never heard someone name a number before, so that was interesting to reflect on. So, now with that, um, so if you'd like to join the discussion, hit the call in button to join the caller queue. I'm going to start picking people to join the conversation. So, I'll, I'll take our next caller, which is Ahmed. So here goes. Ahmed, uh, could you introduce yourself and ask a question? Uh, it looks like he's still on on mute on his end. So, um, uh, so I mean, if, if you're talking, we we can't hear you because it's still on mute. But other callers are welcome to hit the call in button uh, and join the caller queue and ask a question. Uh, and uh, let's see. Okay, and, and in the meantime, um, I, I would just speak for one second about um, uh, life sciences as a market. And maybe the differences between life sciences and the um, and the and the traditional kind of healthcare institutions community. Um, the biggest difference that I've seen is that the life sciences. Um, it, it feels like decision making gets pushed down in life sciences a little bit more, um, and you'll find people uh, be champions because they have an individual lab or something like that. And um, and, and those are, those can be validating in an institution. And those are those are well worth um, those are well worth pursuing, uh, depending on your 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 product. But I would say that um, I, I think that there are more smaller champions in life sciences companies generally, like within a drug company or something like that, versus in healthcare institutions where you frequently have to have the single individual that can be your champion. That's great. Um... So it looks like we don't have, uh, well, it looks like we don't have any more um, Q&A. Uh, so, um, uh, so with that, we'll wind up the call. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk uh, with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, John Sullivan, the former head of strategy and equity research at SVB Leerink. Um, uh, you'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Uh, to get notice of upcoming investor talks, sign up on our MailChimp list, which is in the emails that you've received. Um, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And thank, thank you all.